Well, good morning, Abundant Life Church, and welcome. My name is Bob, and I'm one of the pastors here at Abundant Life. And I spoke a couple weeks ago, and I did a message on political engagement as Christ followers. And I challenged us to engage in the conversation around us differently. I challenged us to participate in sumsukos, which if you remember is to be united in soul. I challenged us to love differently and, and learn and listen to those around us. Ultimately to love unconditionally despite political disagreement. Now, since then, I have literally been trying to practice what I preached and, and I very much mean practice. I'm not doing this perfectly, I'm working on this. And as I've been practicing it, I landed on another topic that I'm wrestling through. And uh, I thought it's very much related and I thought it'd be appropriate to share this topic with you as well. And the topic is fear. Fear, And so I've titled my message, Fear or Love, uh, with a question mark and kind of implying that there is a choice to be made here between fear or love. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. So if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 4. I want to get us to start thinking about this by asking the question, what are you afraid of? When you think of fears, what comes to mind for you? What are your top two or three? Uh, there are a lot of phobias. You know, that's the word we use to communicate fear, phobia. It actually comes from the Greek, which we're going to look at a little bit later. Uh, but a lot of common phobias too. Uh, I might say some of these wrong. Forgive me if I do. Uh, but there is thanatophobia, which is the fear of death, a very common one. There is arachnophobia, common one, the fear of spiders. Uh, I suffer from this, but my wife suffers from it worse. So at our house, I am in charge of uh, spider duty. So I've kind of gotten better with arachnophobia over the years. Uh, there's something called glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. And uh, I was surprised to see that this is actually number one on a lot of different surveys that I looked at, uh, even more so than the fear of death, which I found kind of funny. There are people who would say, I would literally rather die than public speak. Uh, there's one called, and I will pronounce this one right, uh, hippopotamonstrosis quipedaliophobia. Uh, which ironically is the fear of long words. Uh, but there's a lot of them. There's aerophobia, acrophobia, cynophobia, agoraphobia, mesophobia, aphidiophobia, which are the fears of flying heights, dogs, being alone, dirt, and snakes, respectively. And there are a lot of different things to be afraid of in the world around us. However, specifically, there is something to be said about the relationship between fear and love. I was reading an article this week on the biology of fear and love. And there's a hormone produced in the brain that is responsible for both of these different experiences. And the article said, fear and love are indeed two sides of the same thing. Or if you wanna be all scientific about it, they are governed by the same hormone, oxytocin. Now, as the article talked about oxytocin's contribution uh, to both fear and love, it got a little bit funny when it talked about its contribution on the love side of things. When we fall in love and begin to start a family, um, I was most amused by its effect in giving birth. Uh, the writer says that once you go through labor and childbirth, your body's oxytocin manufacturing mechanism goes into overdrive, get this, 
to make sure you'll love and cherish your baby instead of wanting to throw it out the window as revenge for all of the agony it caused you. Uh, Now, I've never given birth. I'm not sure what that feels like, but I would imagine nine months of agony and nausea and all the things that go along with it and then giving birth, a little bit of revenge uh, seems like that would be pretty natural to me. A good thing for oxytocin. It's clear that this hormone is involved in love. Uh, This article also talked about all of the different ways it's involved on the fear side of things and some experiments uh, they've done there. But what we see is that there's clearly a relationship between fear and love. Uh, It is a physiological, biological reality, as well as a spiritual reality, which is what I hope we see today. And so I wanna look at a passage in 1 John, uh, not the gospel of John, but uh, a letter written by John. So it's gonna be all the way towards the end of your Bible if you're following along. And uh, we're not sure as to who the exact John is that wrote this letter. It's most likely either John the apostle or John the elder. Uh, Scholars haven't come to consensus on that. Uh, We're also not exactly sure of the audience. Uh, This seems like more of a broadly spread letter, uh, more written to the church as a whole rather than to a specific church. What is clear is that uh, perhaps the biggest theme in this letter is the theme of love. And in chapter four, uh, John is going to address specifically the tension that exists between fear and love. And in it, there is this incredible truth that I think should dramatically impact our view of God, our relationship with God, and then in turn, our relationship with others. So if you got your spot there in 1 John 4, we're gonna start reading in verse seven. He says, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. You see the difference there? Because God is love. Uh, I love that statement, the very identity of who God is. God is love. Verse nine, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It's not that we love God, emphasis there. It's not that we love God, but it is that he loved us and he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. I don't think there's any doubting, any arguing as we look at the world around us, our country around us, that we could really benefit from a whole lot of love. I mean, we desperately need love, but it's one thing to say that we, we need more love. Uh, but the question is, well, what does that actually look like? What does it mean that we need more love? What is an example of that kind of love? And here we see an incredible example from God, the Father. Now, when I think of the love of God, I'm guilty of often focusing on the love of Jesus. I think that Jesus, uh, you know, his love revealed to us by him on the cross is a pinnacle of God's love. And so I can often focus there, but here we see a different example, one that I've been reflecting on this week. And I think it is a powerful example. Here, real love is God the Father sending his son. You know, not only was Jesus willing to die, but the father was willing to experience the loss of his son. 
I, I once heard a sermon from a guy who was in the military. And uh, in the sermon, he talked about how there wasn't one person in his squad. And, and I don't know if squad's the right word, military folk, forgive me if I got that wrong, correct me later, please. Uh, but he said there wasn't one person in his group that he would not have died for. Like literally he would have died for these guys. And he said the same was true about them. Like they would have died for him. This was a, a powerful image. Now the immature, uh, the immature side of me, I hope we all have an immature side and it's not just me, but uh, the immature side of me kind of imagine this, like when you try to open a door for someone and, and you open the door for them and they're like, oh no, 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 after you. And, and you're like, no, I'm holding the door. For, I insist, like I'm holding the door for you. And it just kind of goes back and forth. I don't know if you've had that moment. I kind of imagined it like, like them, but they're in the midst of battle and they're all like jumping in front of each other, trying to take a bullet. Like, no, 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 I would die for you. No, I would die for you. That's just the immature side of me. But despite that, I listened and this was a powerful message. Like these guys literally would have died for one another. And I've, I've heard people say that. I've heard that said, I would die for you in a variety of different contexts. You know, in the military, we see this in movies, in TV shows, uh, in familial communication of love, like with family members uh, to communicate the extent of my love for you. We, we say things like, I would literally die for you. But it's one thing to say that you would die for someone. Uh, what we see in 1 John, uh, 4.10, the focus is from God the Father's perspective. Here's what I've never heard someone say, that I love you so much that I would let my child die for you. You know, as I've reflected on that this week, I really, I've never heard that said. It, it seems to me like a, just another level of God's love for us. Like, think about that. Uh, for someone to say to you, if the cost for you to experience life was the death of my child, I would pay that cost for you. Imagine hearing those words from God. I've never heard someone say that, but that's what we see from the father here. And remember the disclaimer, it's not that we loved him, we didn't love him. In fact, we were antagonistic against him. Uh, we had turned our backs on him. And yet still, even then in that moment, that's when he demonstrated his love for us, according to Romans 5. And God is love. And this is what real love looks like. And so John continues in verse 11. He says, dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. You know, he's given us the what to do. We're supposed to love one another. Uh, he's given us the why. It's because, well, God loved us first. He set this example. But pay attention now in verse 12, he's going to begin to give us the so what, the, the to what ends. Like, what is this actually going to accomplish? He says in verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, then God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and him in us. It is proof of this. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the son of God have God living in them and they live in God. And we're gonna see this language of living in God and God in them, this unity that exists when we experience this love. It says, we know 
how much God loves us. We have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God and God lives in them. My, my question in reading this is, do you ever have doubts about God? Do you ever doubt his, his goodness or, or his existence or uh, his ability as to whether or not he can intervene in your life today? Do you ever doubt God? Uh, I think it's okay to doubt God. In fact, uh, what we see in the Psalms is that it's okay to even communicate doubt that you have to God. That's what we see the psalmists pray is uh, they are reflecting and giving their doubts to God in prayer. God invites that. Uh, side note, uh, we are going to be launching a series going through Psalms and some, some different types of Psalms next week. So I hope you uh, stay tuned for that. It's gonna be a, a great series. But when it comes to doubt, I do believe that a lot of doubt can be avoided. I think the more that we experience Jesus, the less we doubt Jesus. To me, that just makes sense. The more we experience Jesus and put ourselves in position to experience Jesus, the less we will doubt him. And what John says here is that if we live out love, that God lives in us, his love is brought to fullness in us, and we experience the Holy Spirit of God, and it becomes proof that we are in unity with God. I, I would put it this way. Not only does Christ-like love prove to us that Jesus is alive, it testifies to those around us that Jesus is alive. You know, I can't think of a better example for this that I've experienced in my life uh, than a guy named Bill. Uh, when I was 19, I was uh, first introduced to Jesus, started following Jesus. And uh, one of the first things that I felt called to do in my relationship with Christ was to go on a mission trip. And so my pastor kind of talked me into this mission trip to go to Haiti. And I signed up, was really excited, really felt like God was calling me to do this. And uh, the only problem was I signed up pretty late. And so I had a short amount of time to come up with about $1,500 to go on this trip. And uh, about a week before the trip was gonna happen, I had $400. And so I had pretty much, it was confirmed, I wasn't gonna be able to go. And I went that Sunday to talk to my pastor, the guy who was leading the trip, the guy who talked me into going, Pastor Matt. And I told him, uh, you know, I, I was going to tell him, hey, it's looking like I'm not gonna be able to do this. Uh, there's no way I'm gonna be able to raise $1,100 in a week. And so I was ready to have that conversation. When I showed up to church that Sunday morning, I saw Matt and as I approached him, he actually called out to me and he said, Bob, uh, there's someone I would really love to introduce you to. Can you stick around after service? And I said, okay. And I planned on then having the conversation after service. Uh, so service ends, I go up to Matt and uh, he introduces me to a guy named Bill. Now I had met Bill before, he was a big guy. Uh, he's one of our greeters. And so I would see him every Sunday, but we had never really talked. It was always a, hey, how are you doing? And uh, Bill was one of those just contagious, infectious personalities. Like he would ask you every time, like, how are you doing? It's good to see you. And he's one of those guys that you knew he meant it. Uh, just so genuine. Uh, but this was my first time actually meeting him, hearing from him. And uh, the conversation uh, went where I never would have expected. Uh, Bill told me that him and his wife were really looking forward to a trip to Haiti, that their daughter was actually a missionary in Haiti. And he had heard that I was gonna go. 
And uh, so now I'm thinking, I'm gonna have to have this conversation with Matt and Bill. Uh, this is gonna be so embarrassing. Um, really not looking forward to what was gonna come next. Uh, but then Bill said, uh, we heard that you're going and uh, we also heard that you're uh, struggling raising some of the funds, that you still got some fundraising to do. And uh, so Vicki and I talked, we're not actually gonna be able to go. Uh, we've got some work stuff that has come up. And so we'd like to fund the rest of your trip. And, and church, in that moment, that was exactly what John is talking about here. Bill's act of Christ-like love, of being sacrificial and generous towards me in that moment, it proved that Jesus was alive. It testified to me that Jesus was alive and he was at work. And this was a time where I was a new believer. I had really just met Jesus and you know my faith was still a little bit rocky, but this proved to me that Jesus was alive and he was at work. You know, evangelism is often viewed or defined by simply sharing the gospel or telling people about who Jesus is. But I, I think it's so much more than that. You know, I love our mission statement as a church. It's not telling people about the good news of Jesus. It's giving ourselves to make the gospel good news. You know, the, the communication of the gospel is going to cost me something. And when you see my love for you and what I'm willing to do to uh, show you my love, to let you experience love, you will know that Jesus is real. You will know that he is alive and he is working right now. It testifies both to us. It is proof to us that Jesus is alive and it is proof to those around us. So what does this have to do with fear? You know, that's where I started. Great question. I'm glad you asked. I think fear is probably one of the biggest thing that stands in our way in terms of loving others. And John's going to address this first with fear in regard to God and then with fear in regard to one another. Uh, he says in verse 17, and as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. I wanna read that last part one more time. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not yet fully experienced his perfect love. I would summarize this with a very simple phrase that our love for God cannot be built on fear. You know, we might start there and there's a number of verses in scripture that, that look like this. Uh, Proverbs, this comes up a ton where fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding and knowledge and wisdom. It, it leads to life. It's fear of the Lord that causes us to turn from evil initially. You know, these themes come up in Psalms and in the Pentateuch, in the New Testament, we see uh, this, it's a, it's a common theme. Uh, but what's interesting to me is when God is speaking, God himself very rarely says, fear me. Instead, it's quite the opposite. Uh, when he appears before the prophets in the Old Testament, they are always terrified. <laughs> They're already afraid. And, and God's response to them is always, do not fear. Do not be afraid. You know, Jesus 
encounters terrified disciples all the time. His disciples are always scared, usually because of something he's doing or he's not doing. And so they're terrified all the time. And his words are always, do not be afraid. He always calms them, do not fear. I've heard it said that uh, the Bible says, do not be afraid 365 times, one for every day of the year. And uh, it sounds pretty good. That's actually a myth, uh, but still do not fear and do not be afraid. It's in there a lot. It depends on, on the translation as to exactly how many, but it is a lot. Do not be afraid. Again, we might start there, but as we experience the love of God, fear is expelled. Fear is cast out. If we are afraid, John says it shows that we have not fully experienced the love of God. And I just think this makes so much sense when we put it into English. Uh, The Greek word is phobeo, which is where we get our word phobia. And so fear of God literally is to have a God phobia. And, and so my question would be, should we be God-phobic? And, and maybe initially, but should we be God-phobic long-term? What we see John say here is that perfect love expels fear. If we're afraid of God, it's because we're afraid of punishment, which then in turn keeps us from loving others, often because we're fixated on fear and punishment. I'm sure that all of us at some point have heard the narrative or been taught the narrative about God's punishment and and God's condemnation. Uh, Maybe we don't believe in God because if there is a God, he's probably really angry. Uh, But I wanna give you an illustration that I think challenges that narrative. And uh, this illustration, I heard this uh, a while back and, and it challenged that narrative for me. It caused me to wrestle through some of these ideas. And again, look at God a little bit different. So uh, I hope that this causes you to wrestle a little bit. I want you to imagine uh, those whom you love the most. And so if you're a parent, it's easy. Think about your kids or, or your spouse, or uh, if you have parents or siblings or a best friend, that the person or two that you love the most, maybe you're sitting next to them. I, I want you to imagine them, bring them to mind. And, and I have a question for you. Think of what that person would have to do for you to stop loving them. And, and, and to go even past that, think of what that person would have to do for you to punish them in the ways that God is often attributed as punishing. I'm not talking about disciplining or correcting in love or rebuking. I'm talking about sending them to fiery eternal death. What would that person have to do for you to get there? You can see the, the point of the analogy. I mean, it, it, it can rub you the wrong way. It should cause us to wrestle, to ch- be challenged uh, by narratives that we have heard before. Now, I hear objections to this line of thinking. There's actually some really good objections to this illustration. Uh, but one that I've raised before is, well, God is so holy that he would punish where an earthly parent would not. And, and I think there's some flaws in that objection. You, you see, for some reason, we often equate God's holiness with petulance. Like God is so holy that he has this need to punish, to condemn. You see, if he doesn't punish or if he doesn't condemn, then his holiness will be tainted. 
But what I hear John trying to communicate here is that God's holiness is not equated with petulance. God's holiness is equated with perfect love. In fact, love is the identity here. It's, the, it's part of his very being. God is love. And so I think instead of God punishing when an earthly parent would not, it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. God loves infinitely more than the parent ever could. And so if you could come up with something that your child or spouse or parent or best friend could do uh, that you would stop loving them or that you would punish them, I would say that God loves them infinitely more than you ever could. And I, I think we need to reflect on that being true for us. I think you need to reflect on that being true for you, that God loves you more than anyone ever could, infinitely more than anyone ever could could. Again, I hope that illustration and this passage in general, I hope it causes you to wrestle. You know, this one for me, it messes with some of the preconceived notions that I have that I, I bring to the text. And this one, again, it, it, it challenges me. I hope it does that for you as well. At the end of the day, the reality is I don't think we will completely wrap our minds around the love of God, especially the love of God for us in this life. I just don't think it's gonna happen. I will say though, that the more that we try to, the more that we lean into this love and just try to understand it, the more fear will be driven out. John says, the more confidence we will have in our relationship with God. I would summarize it this way. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. God as revealed to us in Jesus is not a God of fear, but a God of perfect love. God's not a God of fear, but of perfect love. And I wanna finish the passage as we see what, what happens when we take that love from God and we allow it to cast out fear, what it does to our relationships with others. John says, we love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. Some pretty harsh words from John. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. And church, it's not just fellow believers. We hear from Jesus, it's loving our neighbor, loving our enemy. There shouldn't be anyone who is exempt from our love. So if you read that last statement, those who love God must also love people. We must love people. And this is what I've been wrestling through is I've been trying to engage in the political conversation as I've been trying to love those around me. I've realized that fear can inhibit my love. And I came up with a few things that, you know, I've realized I'm afraid of as I've been having this conversation. I'd encourage you, maybe you resonate with some of these, but I'd encourage you, write down your own, reflect on this. What are you afraid of as you try to love other people well? You know, I wrote down negative perception. Now, what if I say the wrong thing or, or do the wrong thing? You know, I love what Dr. Carolyn Leaf uh, says. She's a neuroscientist and, and she really is a neuroscientist. I saw her speak one time, it was like 45 minutes. And I, I tell you, I think I got like 5% or 10% of what she had to say uh, because it was so complex. Uh, but she says the version someone created of you inside their mind is not your responsibility. You see, I think that perfectly summarizes my fear. Like what if someone else's version of me 
isn't the best version of me possible. You know, I can be afraid of that. And I love what she's saying and I agree with it. It's not my responsibility, but you know, I still have the fear of a negative perception. You know, I'm fearful of rejection. And, and this comes from both sides. I hope you follow me here. You know, I, I try to, if I try to love someone I disagree with, and I've been doing this, you know, I've been doing it on social media. If I hear some, something or see something posted that I disagree with, I've just been messaging and saying, hey, could you explain uh, more to me about that? Or, hey, how did you land here? Can I just learn more? So with people that I disagree with, I have been trying to love them and learn from them. But uh, just because of my questions, they might realize I disagree with them. And because I disagree with them, they might reject me altogether, despite my intentions to love them and learn from them. So I can be rejected from that side. But then there's also people over here that do agree with me on whatever topic it is. And what if the people who agree with me now reject me because I am reaching out to this person I disagree with, I'm loving them, I'm trying to listen to them and learn from them. What if they reject me too? I could get this from both sides. You know, there's fear of, of my past, of past hurt in relationships and friendships. You know, past hurt from times where I've tried to love people who are uh, different or uh, think differently. You know, I wrote down that some people have been hurt so bad in the past that they fear getting hurt more than they have the desire to experience love. You know, they fear hurt more than they desire love and so fear wins and we don't even try. You know, the fear of what if I don't have enough? What if uh, love causes me to be generous and therefore at the end of the day, I don't have enough left over? What if, what if that happens? You know, I'm, I'm fearful. I think there are so many fears. Again, I hope you come up with some of your own. But at the end of the day, those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus, those of us who claim to know God, John says we must be defined by love, that love must conquer and overcome and expel fear. And at the end of the day, when all is said is done, Christians, those who follow Jesus must be defined as love. And it's specifically sacrificial love that looks like Trinitarian love. I would ask church, how are we doing? How do you think we're doing it. If you had to, to guess at how people look at the church, look at Christians, how do they define us? What would you say? You know, I've thought about this a lot and I actually put a survey out this week on my Instagram and I asked this question. I said, if you had to choose one word to describe Christians, what would that word be? And I put a little disclaimer that, hey, it, be honest, you're not gonna hurt my feelings here. I hope you're not talking about me personally, just Christian, so I won't take it personally. I also said, I'd love to hear from you if you're not a Christian. And I got almost 75 responses. I didn't even realize I had that many followers on Instagram, but I got almost 75 responses to this. And, and church, put on your seatbelts. Most of those responses, I would say a vast majority of them were negative. A, a vast majority words, uh, themes that I saw come up in the words were uh, words like oppressive, boring, conservative, iffy, hit or miss. You know, there's some good ones, but there's a lot of bad ones. A couple themes on the positive side were passionate. That came up a few times. And uh, super cool came up one time, a former student of mine, you know who you are and uh, you are super cool. But the top two, by far, not even close, far and above, were the words judgmental and hypocritical. 
when people think of Christians, of people who follow Jesus, the top two were judgmental and hypocritical. And church, I wasn't surprised by this. I actually gave a message almost a year ago now in Matthew 7 and talked about the judgment and hypocrisy that I've seen personally in the church. But here's what I'll say. It's one thing to kind of know this and be aware, like I'm sure there have to be people who look at the church and, and Christians and, and, and think that they're judgmental. Like that has to, you know, from some stuff I've seen that has to be the case. But it's another thing to actually have that suspicion confirmed and to read this as message after message after message comes in with the words judgmental judgmental, hypocritical, hypocrisy, judgmental, hypocritical. And, and here's what I'll say. I think fear and the role that fear plays, both that we, uh, the, the role that we allow fear to play both in our relationship with God and with others, I think it has a lot to do with this. You know, one person messaged me, one word was not enough for this person. And they messaged me uh, with just an incredible profound thought. They said, I tend to stay away from religious conversations with family because I feel more judged than anything else for not being a Christian. The resounding, overwhelming feeling in conversations with people who follow Jesus is judgment. This person felt judged. And what really, what really stuck out to me is that this was conversations with family. Even with family who are Christians, this person felt more judged than anything else. And this person, church, is not alone. It's, this person is not alone. The family members that you know who aren't following Jesus, that you desperately want to, to experience Jesus, the people that you love, that you're close with, that you desperately want to experience Jesus, chances are they feel judged. If not by you, then certainly by the church or by Christians. You know, if, if you want these people to experience Jesus, chances are they feel like your message is riddled with hypocrisy. If not from you, then certainly from the church, again, from Christians. This was the overwhelming response. Out of 75 people, only one person said love. Only one person, when they think of Christians, the defining word that came to mind was love. Yet this is supposed to be what defines us above all and beyond all. My question is, can we change that? Can we do something about that? Can I do something about that? Have you experienced the love of God? I would say start there. Are you primarily engaging in narratives that represent God's judgment and fear of God and punishment? Or are you engaging in narratives of his love, expelling fear, of his perfect love, casting out all fear? Have you internalized the love of God and begin to spread that to others through action? You know, Arthur Brooks, he wrote an article in The Atlantic and uh, talking about the connection between the biology of love and uh, the spiritual side of love. I thought this was so great, kind of where we started. Uh, he says, oxytocin has also been found to reduce anxiety and stress by inhibiting the response of the amygdala to outside stimuli, which is a very fancy way of saying, if you have loving contact with others, the outside world will seem less scary and less threatening to you. What St. John asserted is literally true. Perfect love drives out fear. I love it when science and scripture line up like that. 
No, we must stand in the perfect love of God and allow it to change us, to transform us from the inside out, to expel our fears. And so I've asked the worship team to close us out by singing the song that they opened us with. You know, if you don't remember, the words go like this. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. And so I wanna invite you wherever you're at to just sit back and relax and let the worship team sing these words over you. And I, I encourage you, just listen to them. Reflect on them, know that God loves you fully and completely and allow that reality to impact your relationship with him. Allow it to drive out fear with him and allow that reality to impact your relationship with others. May we love like nobody else around us is loving. Would you pray with me? God, I pray in this moment that you would allow us to reflect that you are love. It is part of your very identity. The very fabric of your being is love. God, let us receive your love better. God, let us experience it. Let us stand in it as this song says, let us love you completely, God. Would you drive out our fear, our fear of punishment and experience perfect love. May it prove to us that you are who you say you are. God, let us be a people defined by love for us individually as we go from here and reflect on your words, God. When people think about us, may they think love. May we love in such a way that communicates, that proves, that testifies you are alive and you are at work right here and right now in Jesus' name. Amen.